this. So we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter um, 3. And it reads like this. There we go. This is Moses. Uh, They have come all the way through now. So they've come across the Red Sea. They've come to Mount Sinai. They've gone up to Kadesh Barnea. They rebelled. They went back in the desert 40 years. Now they're standing on the brink. And Moses is having a conversation with the Lord. And he says this, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good country in Lebanon. When you read this, you might not get the context, but this is actually one of the most heart-rendering requests that can be found in the Bible. Okay? Moses is heart-stricken uh, in this prayer. Can you feel the leverage in it? If you're a parent, you've, you've had to pick that up, right? Um, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Hey, we've just gotten started, Lord. You and me, right? We're tight. Get that? And um, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works or mighty acts as yours? This, I was laughing this week. This is like my son Matthew uh, asking for an overnight with his friends. Okay? He, it usually goes like this. Hey, Mom, Dad, I've been such a good kid this week. <laughs> and Mom, Dad, have you noticed I have all my homework done? And Mom, Dad, have I told you what great parents you are and how much I love you? Any of you ever heard that routine before? Moses is doing the same thing. Here it comes. I mean, wait for it. Wait for it, right? Please, let me go over to the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. Remember that when Moses is praying this, he had never gone in. The 12 spies had gone in. Joshua had gone in, but Moses himself had never gotten in. And can you imagine from Moses' perspective the irritation factor of having to hand this whole thing off to Joshua and he gets to go in and Moses doesn't? I don't think we think of Moses as human enough, right? But he had to hand it off. Like, to him? I mean, seriously? How's he going to handle that? He's way too young. Moses is thinking, I can't even handle this crowd. How is he going to do it? And so here he's pleading for a reprieve from the Lord. Please, pretty please, with sugar on top. This is huge for Moses. Why? Why is this such an impassioned plea? I want to suggest that, remember, it had been over 80 years that he'd been waiting for this. 80 years. That's a long time. Have you been waiting for answers to some of your prayers? How long? Moses had waited 80 years for this one. And then to come right to the cusp, right to the border, right to the limit of the land, and not be able to go in. Can you comprehend the anguish of that? What he was feeling? The Lord says this, 
But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Sounds like a dad, doesn't it? There's more than a little, look what happened to me because of you in here. If it hadn't been for you, I could have gotten in. If it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't have struck the rock twice. If it hadn't been for you, I'd be sailing along just fine. Do you get pick that in there? The Lord was angry with me because of you. Right? He's just got that grind in his voice. And think of why that was so bitter to him. I would call this bitterness. Why was that so bitter to him? Because they got to go in and he didn't. They got to go in where he was the original carrier of the promise. Now, they get to go in. And then God renders His decision. Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Done. Right? If it was me, I would have put an exclamation point behind that. What does this tell us? This isn't the first time that they've had this discussion. This has happened before. Moses has tried to leverage his relationship with God to get him to change his mind so that he could get to go in. And although it wasn't the first time they had the discussion, it would be the last. It was painful for Moses. It was painful for God. Stop. Go up and take a look. But you're not going in. Can you imagine Moses going, man, seriously? And just because I hit the rock twice instead of once? After all I've done for you, that's seriously? And God says, yeah, seriously. This story galvanizes the issue of sin. What it looks like from our perspective and what it looks like from God's perspective. And it highlights the cost. There is a price tag. There is an enormous loss. And as we head towards Easter, the prayer here this morning is that we would understand the costly nature of sin from God's perspective. I thought this morning it would be good to go back through some of the stories and just highlight uh, the cost of sin across the board on a couple different levels. First of all, let's look at sin on a, a personal level. It's, uh, we're close to uh, opening day, so I thought I'd throw a little Yogi Berra in there. All right. Those of you who are baseball fans will get it. Um, but uh, sin on a personal level. Now, when you think of Moses, what's interesting is this is not the first time this has happened to Moses. He, he uh, has experienced being dislocated and disenfranchised before. Uh, Moses, uh, most uh, scholars think Moses had a sense of God's call on his life um, way back in the day of Egypt when he was the prince of Egypt. And, uh, and so Moses was looking for an opportunity. And it says one day when Moses had gone up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He's thinking probably this will let them know I'm on their side. He's probably thinking this will give them hope. God is about to do something. 
Uh, but instead, here's what happened. It says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, fighting. They were duking it out. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince or judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Whoa, people know about this? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. This exile would last 40 years. Moses taking matters into his own hands, trying to work out God's plan for him, would cost Moses 40 years in the desert. It was a major detour in Moses' life story, one that God sovereignly uses, but a detour nonetheless. Have you ever given thought uh, to how different history would be? World history. Think about it. How different would history be as we know it if Moses hadn't killed that Egyptian? Kind of trippy to think about that. Huh? How different would history be? How different would the stories be if Moses hadn't killed that Egyptian? Moses experienced great personal loss because of his sin. Uh, Moses is known as the friend of God. We're going to, in fact, talk about Moses and the greatness of Moses on Easter. So just a couple weekends from now, we're, we're going to contrast Jesus and Moses and, and, and compare the two because there's some very strong parallels in Scripture. But these, this story illustrates a principle that I've tried hard to make us aware of. And the principle is this. You can't control the consequences of your sin. If you're thinking about sinning and trying to get away with it, know today as we stand here, you cannot control the consequences of your sin. It squirts out in ways that you can't anticipate. It does things that are incredibly damaging and, and wrecks a lot of stuff. You're saying, oh yeah, I can. Sure, I'm pretty clever. Well, if Moses couldn't, do you think you can? Would you say you're a match for Moses? Would you say you're a match in your relationship with God as Moses was? I want to suggest if Moses couldn't control it, then neither can we. And I also believe very strongly that's why God recorded these events to show us as much. He's allowed, so to speak, the dirty underwear of some of the great saints to be hanging out there that other people could see the recorded record and go, Okay, that would be something not to do. And that's why they're recorded. Now take all of that and bring it back. Right? I did a little rabbit trail around the bush there for you. But bring it all back. So how much do you think it hurt Moses that he couldn't go in? Your entire life's work stops there. And you're not allowed to go in. You know, he had what we would call a lot of sweat equity, literally, invested in this venture. Everything he was, he gave his life to it. And it was incredibly costly. And with that story, I want to highlight the high cost of personal sin. Don't hear much about sin in our culture. As a matter of fact, if you listen to our culture, there is no sin. But if we read the Bible well and accurately... 
it, the odds are highly likely that there's probably not one of us who didn't sin in some form or fashion this week. The difference is in the levels or the details, not in that we sin. So the question would be, what does that do? What does that do to us? So I just broke this down into some levels and I'd like to start with the uh, high cost of sin on a personal level. Greg, I'm froze up. Can you move me forward? Thank you. All right. So let's, we've been talking uh, here. Oh, can you hit me again? There we go. Moses was not allowed to go in. We've been talking about this whole thing, but it wasn't just Moses. Uh, Aaron wasn't allowed to go in. Uh, Aaron um, was complicit in, thank you, Dave, was complicit in several events that he was not allowed to go in. If you remember Aaron's story, he was involved in the uh, golden calf. Remember he lied during that thing? He crafted that thing. But he said when his brother showed up, oh, I just threw the gold in the fire and this calf jumped out. Very believable. And he was complicit in the rebellion with Miriam when Miriam opposed Moses. And uh, interesting that story, Miriam becomes leprous, but uh, it doesn't say much about what the consequences were for Aaron. And then uh, he was also complicit in the striking of the rock twice. It says very explicitly, Moses and Aaron were there together and Aaron, uh, Moses struck the rock twice. And because of that, Aaron himself is not allowed to go into the promised land. Aaron also had a lot at stake in this. The next one, Miriam, uh, became leprous because of her sin against her brother. She started saying, you know what, you're a little brother and you're getting some big britches and I'm going to put you in your place. And God said, well, I'm actually the one who put Moses in his place. Do you want to contend with me? Have you ever complained to God about who he's put in place? You ever contended with him over his leaders? Miriam did. And it cost her. Uh, there was the Sabbath breaker who, remember, God told him, do not go out and gather wood or those kind of things on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. And uh, this guy said, oh, I'm going to go get some sticks. Maybe it was cold in the morning. It can be that way in the desert. And uh, he didn't think a big deal of it. And he was brought before the Lord and then stoned to death. So his disobedience literally cost him his life. Then there was Nadab and Abihu. Aaron's sons, Aaron's two oldest sons, and they uh, were ordained, anointed as priests, and they were to bring the offerings, and they were to bring the incense, and there's very strict, if you go to Leviticus, very strict instructions about what kind of incense can be brought and exactly how it's to be presented before the Lord. Thank you, Dave. And, uh, and they brought what the Bible calls strange fire. It was an incense that was not uh, right to be offered. Uh, wasn't prescriptive. And so when they offered the incense, the fire came out from the altar and killed both of them. And Aaron wasn't even allowed to mourn as a father. Because God said, you know what instructions I gave you. Do not mourn. And uh, you know they had to clean the bodies out. And he was, can you imagine the impact of that on Aaron? High cost to Aaron, high cost uh, to Nadab and Abihu. There was the uh, 250 men 
Remember the in last week the the uh, if if you weren't here last week you can go to our website download the message but we talked about the rebellion of Korah and remember the place where it said those 250 men were choice leaders in Israel in other words they weren't nobodies they were somebodies and those 250 took their censers and they went and and Moses said God is going to show whose are his and whose aren't and it says fire came out from the altar and killed the 250 men incredible uh, price for the sin of presumption. What were those men being? They were being presumptuous. They saying, we're also Levites. We are also priests. We are also holy. We can offer uh, the same offerings that Aaron's family can make. Who made him uh, the big holy priest? We're just as holy as him. And so it was the sin of presumption. I can do what God's asked others to do because I'm God's son too. And disastrous effects uh, on that. There's a high cost of sin on a, on a family level, uh, not just a personal level. In Numbers 16, if you remember the story last week, it said as soon as he had finished speaking, this is Moses talking, the rebellion has broken out. Moses has interceded for the nation and said, God, are you going to kill the whole nation for the sin of one man? And so God relents and then he ch- charges Moses and says, go out and talk. And so Moses goes out and he says, um, as soon as Moses finished speaking all these words to Korah, the ground, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and their goods. Now that's kind of, oh well. But there might have been something last week. I, I read it. I didn't say anything about it. And I wanted to just see if it caught your attention like it caught mine. If you go just a few verses before that, this is in also number 16, verse 27. It says, And Dathan and Byram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their, with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. In other words, the sin of Dathan and Abiram literally impacted their entire family line. Think about the members of the families of the 250 men who had been consumed by the fire. What would have been the effect on those families? That's a lot of people would be the effect on the wives and the children. For Dathan and Abiram, it had a disastrous, absolutely, totally disastrous family implications as the family line was completely wiped out. The father's sins wiped out the whole family. Now we could say, oh, those are terrible old stories in the Old Testament. That's why... We like the New Testament because God's a God of love in the New Testament. Is it any different today? Is it any different in our culture? I've watched families for a long time now make choices that have essentially had the same effect. And it's absolutely heart-wrenching. And here's what's heart-wrenching from my perspective. 
I watch the little children, right, in those families. And apart from the almighty goodness and grace of God, they're essentially dead. And they don't even know it. Because I watch what their parents are doing and I realize they're derailed and they don't even know they're derailed. There's a high cost of sin also on a national level. Um, Taking it outside of Israel, I thought it would be worth reminding us when you think of Pharaoh and his sin, he lost his kingdom, his army, and his life due to the hardness of his heart. Not only did he lose that, but he lost his firstborn son. Do you remember that story? That's an incredible price to pay for stubbornness. The Egyptians lost the firstborn of all their children for not listening to the warnings. They knew what the warnings was. They knew what Jehovah God was doing. Uh, Moses made the proclamation across the land. And the ones who didn't listen suffered an incredible consequence. But on a national level, um, when you go to the Golden Calf incident, uh, 3,000 of them lost their lives for breaking loose. What's breaking loose? Uh, Breaking loose is... I don't want God's rules to rule me anymore. I'd rather have some fun. I'd rather light it up and get away with it. The thing we miss in this, I think, is uh, Israel, four times they were in danger of being completely wiped out as a nation by God. There is a nation of Israel today not because they were so righteous. As a matter of fact, God says, note this well, when I bring you into the land, I'm bringing you into the land, but it's not because of your righteousness. It's because of the wickedness of the nations I'm replacing you with. So don't think you're hot stuff, in essence, is the message. Right? What were uh, the incidents? Well, this first one is Sinai, right? The golden calf incident. Basically, that's impatience. God was taking too long. You ever get impatient with God? Second one is the one we've been talking about here, the rebellion of Korah, where it says Korah assembled the entire assembly before the tent of meeting. In other words, the entire nation had gathered and God said to Moses, step aside so that I can wipe them out. And Moses interceded wisely. Uh, Moses had a brilliant gift of intercession. And as a result, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and the 250 men, that's a terrible toll, but it's far less than the entire nation. That was set in motion by the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea when they could have gone into the promised land and they believed the report of the ten spies instead of um, the two good ones. By the way, do we have people um, in our culture telling us not to go into the promised land today? Don't go towards Jesus. That's foolishness. Jesus, there is no Jesus. He's old. He's done. It's arthritic. It's crippled. It's history. It's, we're, we've done that. We're past that. 
There are spies saying, no, we can go in and take the land. There are, God still has his prophets in the land. But the vast majority of the culture says, don't go in. And then there's another incident, the incident of Baal Peor. This is one that um, we've not spent a lot of time on, but in this incident, um, what happens is Balaam uh, is a prophet of the Lord. Balak, a king, summons Balaam to come and prophesy against Israel, and he can't. And Israel is blessed in all three proclamations of Balaam, uh, the prophet. And then in Scripture, you kind of pick up this footnote that when Israel does come into the land and goes to battle, they kill not only Balak, Balak, but they also kill uh, Balaam. And you're thinking, wow, why did Balaam get killed? Because he was the prophet of the Lord who spoke those three blessings on the nation of Israel. You would think that God would have spared him, that he would have kept him uh, because of the good service that he had done. But if you read uh, enough in those stories, what you find out is that Balaam said, look, I can't pronounce a curse against them, but here's a way you can get them. One of the ways they're vulnerable is they can be seduced. And so take your women and start a party and start an orgy and they will start partying and gather into this orgy with you. And as a result, you can derail them that way. And it says that the party got so big and so out of hand that while Moses and the elders were at the tent of meeting weeping over what was going on, a man from uh, Israel brought in a, a wife from Midian and, or a gal from Midian and they went to his tent and basically they were making love. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, took a spear and ran the spear through the guy and the gal. And the plague was stopped that day. That's a dramatic story. They could actually make that one in Hollywood and be accurate. All right? 23,000 lost their lives in that incident before the plague was actually, actually stopped. What I'm trying to get us to... Uh, slow down a little bit and contemplate. In each of these incidents, apart from significant intervention and intercession, the entire nation would have been lost. This last one, the uh, sin of Baal Peor, is especially significant because it's recorded in both Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then mention again in Joshua for its disastrous and staining effects upon the nation. And then it's recounted again in the Psalms. And then it's recounted again by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's the chapter you'd be familiar with that says, for there's no temptation that you've encountered such as common to man. And God will give you a way out. In that chapter, Paul lists the things that says, don't fall into these things. There's a way out of those temptations. And the issue that the one he pulls is this issue of Baal of Peor. He uses as an illustration that something should be severely avoided by us. What is God trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate the disastrous consequences of immorality on a generation. What it does. The danger of what I called earlier breaking the traces and wanting to play in an illicit way. Let's, let's talk about this for a minute. 
There's three big lies about sin in our culture. There's probably more. But here's three big ones. See if you recognize these. Lie number one. It's not sin if it's not hurting anyone. Sin always hurts somebody. It's an issue of timing. The impact just hasn't happened yet. Sin always hurts somebody. Don't confuse timing with impact. Sin always, if nothing else, hurts the heart of God. Here's the second line. It's not sin if no one knows about it. I'm here Sunday. I did stuff this week. Nobody knows. Nobody would tell. I'm Joel and Sally, good Christian. I smile. You ask me how I am. I say fine. I know the right words. I know the right posture. And I am bulletproof. I'm invincible. You can't crack my game. The modern day expression of this is what? What's done in Vegas stays in Vegas. Really. Really what it should say is what's done in Vegas sticks to you no matter where you go. What's done in Vegas stains you permanently. What's done in Vegas you never get away from. And really that should say whatever is done in secret will come to the surface. It's just a matter of time. That right there ought to scare the bejeebers out of us right now. And if you're not scared, then I would be scared for you. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.24 points this out, and this is worth remembering. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Now where some people's sin is obvious, you can spot it. Other sins, not so obvious. But it's going to show up. Even if it only shows up at the great judgment, will that go well for us? No, it won't go well for us. Here's the third one. This one's become real popular. If I don't think it's a sin, then it's not. Why? Because I said so. I decide what's sin and what isn't, and that's not sin. And if you call it sin, you're judgmental. And how dare you be judgmental? You're a sinner. I can call your sin out, but how dare you call my sin out? And the question according to this one would be, according to who? According to who? My ability to justify and excuse my own action knows no limits. How about you? This blindness has often been noted in that uh, it takes the form of what looks reprehensible and vile in others looks fairly okay when it's in me. Because somehow I'm different and I can handle it. And somehow I'm above the fray and the fracas. So it's not really sin for me, but oh, for you? Oh, 
That's bad stuff, man. Here's what I want to suggest this morning. If God calls it sin, then it doesn't matter what I call it. It's one of the great truths of the Bible. Is If God calls it sin, it doesn't matter what I call it. Because it's going to get measured by what He calls it, not what I call it. And here's the bottom line truth that's still true today. It's been true uh, all through history and point out this. The wages of sin is death. The payday. The product. What comes out of it is death. Now, we can blow that off and say, well, it's, I'm not dead. I've sinned. There's a lot of other kinds of death besides sin. Financial death, we call what? Bankruptcy. What do we call the death of a marriage? Divorce. What do we call mental death? Insanity. Right? One of the big things in our culture is suicide. There, there's all kinds of forms of death that don't just have to do with physical death. So this morning as we come into communion, I would like to ask the uh, communion servers to come forward, if you would, and begin to distribute communion. I want to show you a picture. Anybody recognize this? Know what this is? This is in Israel. This is Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. This is uh, the town that you see there in the biblical times wasn't there. Uh, Nablus is the town. Um, but this is Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And Moses instructed them in the book of Deuteronomy that when they came into the promised land that they were to take the nation. Here, Nate. Thank you, sir. They were to take the nation and split the tribes of Israel in half. And they were to put half of the tribes on Mount Ebal and they were to put half the tribes on Mount Gerizim. And then as a nation, they were to call out curses and blessings. Kind of a weird thing. We don't really do that today, right? But they were to say, if you follow the Lord, here's how the Lord will bless. And if you disobey the Lord, here's how God will curse. And they did a national object lesson of reviewing what God had taught them in the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. These 40 years we just walked through. These stories we've just spent rehearsing and going back over. If you do this, you'll be blessed of the Lord. If you do this, you'll be cursed of the Lord. If you obey the Lord, your baskets will be full. If you obey, disobey the Lord, your baskets will be empty. And it goes on like that. It's an antithemum. And it was getting them to recognize and never forget that picture of the tribes shouting at each other the blessings and the curses of the Lord. You know, and that's good. Why is this morning good? I, I know it's pretty sobering. Why is it good? It's good to remind ourselves that when we come to communion, we come before the living God. Paul says you shouldn't come to communion in an unworthy manner. That you should think through your life and you should think through your heart and you should get right before the Lord. And because a lot of people didn't at that time, even when Paul was speaking, he said a lot of you are sick or asleep. And when he meant asleep, he didn't mean they were taking a nap while the preacher was speaking. It meant they had died. Their sin had literally uh, caused them death. 
And so when we come this morning and we recognize these stories and then we transport ourselves to the New Testament and we come to Jesus and we come heading towards Easter and we start to think about the incredible gift that we have in Jesus, this whole idea of celebrate God for what He's done like we did in worship this morning. We start to realize that sin is a very serious issue to God. And part of how we know it's a very serious issue is what it cost Him. Sin doesn't just cost us and it didn't just cost Israel. It cost God. It cost Him His only Son. The best He had. The best He could give. It cost an absolute, unbelievable step to stand instead of a group of people whose sin was over their head, who couldn't pay the price tag, And we're on a one-word track bound for hell. And God interceded in that and intercepted that path by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus came down and He died on that cross for our sin so that there was a way that could be covered for our sin. That by faith our sin could be washed, it could be cleansed, And over 2,000 years later, we come with the very symbols that Jesus instituted on that night. By the way, here's a plug. Join us Good Friday. We've got a special service lined up. But on that night, He instituted this sacrament, this reminder, this remember what I did for you, but also remember the cost of sin. Remember what it's produced. I give life. Sin produces death. And he said, this is my body. Think through what I had to go through to stand in the gap for your sin. Treat it with highest honor. Eat this in memory of me. Then he took the cup, which is a pretty vivid symbol of shed blood. He said, this is a symbol of my blood, which is shed for you. You're now covered. You're now washed. But it was at a huge price tag. Please don't take it for granted. He said, drink this in memory of me. We're going to worship together in just a minute and lift this up. But would you stand and let's pray. Father, we have walked through a rehearsal of the sins of some of our brothers and sisters a long time ago. Records that you kept for us, that your word tells were specifically recorded for us as a warning to not go the way they went. I pray the lessons aren't lost this morning and I pray that you'll be able to speak clearly and we pray our hearts would respond in a right way to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.